Hey everybody, this is Taylor with a quick explainer up front. This obviously is not our standard episode of The Big Thing. It is not airing on a Friday, but we felt like this was an issue that needed to be discussed with some immediacy. So, yesterday, the results of an independent investigation commissioned by U.S. Soccer and headed by Sally Yates were released in a comprehensive report which revealed, amongst many other things, that the U.S. Soccer Federation and the NWSL failed to provide a safe environment for players and repeatedly ignored players' allegations of abuse and inappropriate behavior by coaches over many years. I won't attempt to summarize a 173-page document because there are others far more qualified to do so. What I will say is that it is horrible to hear what these women had to go through, from the abuse itself to the inaction when it was reported and the ostracizing that followed. It hurt their careers. But much more importantly, their lives, their relationships, their mental health. It was men who they were supposed to be able to trust who revealed themselves to be predators. And then the institutions that were meant to protect those players doing nothing at best and in some cases protecting the predators at worst. It's a situation that requires knowledge to discuss, empathy to understand, and emotional maturity to not just end up ranting for hours on end. And we didn't feel like we had enough of any of those things to be able to add necessary information or necessarily useful information to the conversation, certainly not more than Meg Linehan and Steph Young already have. So with their permission, we're republishing their episode of Full Time in our feed today. Meg and Steph are incredible at what they do. I'm guessing many of you already know that, but for those who don't or aren't as familiar, listen to this episode, you'll soon understand. One other thing for me that I'd like to say, uh, I didn't know anything about this until the stories of the players started getting reported, but I still feel complicit. I felt pretty sick, pretty angry uh, yesterday reading the report, reading the summaries of the report. I remember asking a guest like somewhat recently uh, about a team and why they were playing so poorly, why they couldn't put things together. Was it the players? Was the coach struggling to convey what he wanted? We didn't really have any answers, but we're talking about them, you know, in terms of how they're playing. And this was a team who we now know uh, the coach was an abusive and manipulative predator and that the team had a toxic atmosphere because they didn't know what else they could do. And I think about that and, and really feel just horrible. I feel awful. I feel awful for what's happened, but also awful because for those players who are already going through something, not that they were listening, but if they were, to hear somebody who just has no idea talk about them in, in this sort of, I don't know, removed way, it, it, it bothers me a lot, uh, genuinely. So I think it's a lesson for me, hopefully for us all, but definitely for this show, uh, that we can do more to have that empathy, to remember that we're talking about humans and that humans deserve to live safe and and protected lives that they deserve to have the people who are meant to look out for them look out for them and the institutions that are meant to protect them do just that. So with that in mind, it's a wake-up call that there need to be more and better protections in place for a huge population of people in this country, and that's broadly speaking. More specifically in this situation, it's a reminder that the NWSL and the Federation have now incurred a huge emotional, psychological, and likely legal debt that they now have to work to repay to the fans, to the people who care about the league, to people who care about the national team, but also to those players, uh, both the players mentioned in the report and any player who has felt unsafe, who has felt not protected, has felt not looked after by the institutions that well and truly failed them. It is some comfort, some small comfort, that the Federation itself, under new leadership, uh, commissioned this report but the fact that the current president, Cindy Parlo-Cohn, was herself mentioned as having been harassed by a staff member of a club who is still employed by that club shows that anyone and everyone can be impacted 
and that there's a lot, a lot of work to be done. Hopefully, they will prove themselves up for it and capable of doing it. So, enough from me. Over to Megan Steff. Welcome to Full Time with Meg Linehan. I'm Meg. You are listening to a show all about women's soccer on the Athletic Podcast Network. Now, today is not our normal published day, but we wanted to get an episode out. It's after 1 p.m. on Monday, and you now know that the full investigation findings of U.S. soccer's independent investigation into the NWL, led by Sally Yates, that report is now out. It's a 173-page document. There's a lot in it. Um, Steph and I recorded earlier today with what we have been able to build our reporting around prior to this release. Um, I do want to just give you the heads up that there's obviously a lot of very sensitive content in here. And first and foremost, we just hope that everybody is taking it as they can today. So take care of yourself first um, before maybe listening or or reading anything about this. Um, But just wanted to give that heads up at the top of the show. So it's me and, and Steph Young discussing our reporting that will come out throughout the day and reflecting on, honestly, the past year and a half of reporting as well. Uh, Full Time with Meg Linehan is presented by Klarna, the new smart way to pay when you shop online for tickets, team merch, and more. And we're going to skip the news. Obviously, there's a lot of NWL Regular season stuff to discuss in terms of playoffs being set, OL Reign, winning the Shield, Chicago Red Stars, getting that final playoff berth. Um, We will be back next week at some point with the usual NWSL stuff, but hitting the pause button during this international break feels like a a good call. Um, If you have not yet subscribed to The Athletic and you want to be able to read all of this coverage and, and want to support this podcast, you can always subscribe at theathletic.com slash full-time. Here is the discussion with Steph. Honestly, let's just start with, I don't even know where to start today. Um, We are recording this Monday morning. Um, We have a a little bit of information about what's going to, to go on later, and we are able to discuss the executive summary, really, and the systemic recommendations out of this Sally Yates report. But there is, even with what we have been able to read so far, a lot to discuss. And and there is a lot more that we still don't even know what we're potentially talking about. So I just want to start with the acknowledgement that we are operating with slightly limited information, and there is still an overwhelming... (laughs) amount of of things to discuss i think maybe the the place to start is that the main takeaway for me is that there's definitely new information in what we were able to read but honestly this just kind of affirms everything that i think we've been working on for a year and a half um it was once again, upsetting. Uh, another round of like being truly upset. I think fans are going to be. Well, I'm not going to try to predict how people feel. That's like a, a recipe for disaster. But 
I've slept on, well, I barely slept on it, but I slept on it. And even still, I'm just like, oof. there's new names that came up in the report, not as offenders, but as people who had knowledge of situations. And now the question becomes, did they do enough? Did they not do enough? Why did they do what they do? How was the system set up so that this many people could receive this much information? And yet they all just kind of miss each other, which is a point in the report that it was so scattershot and there was no formal protocol or policy in many instances. And so it created a situation where sure, four or five people might know, but it was set up so that they could either push responsibility off onto someone else. It could be minimized. It could be ignored and it could just kind of disappear into the ether, leaving the players with another round of like, I got to do this all over again. I think one detail that really stood out to me um, is that some kind of report about Paul Riley reached either NWSL or U.S. soccer personnel every year from 2005 to 2021. 2015. Every year. 2015. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be fair, yeah. yeah. It is... I think it's just... There are going to be a lot of emotions today. There were already a lot of emotions, I think, for the two of us. Um, to your point, though, I think getting the full extent of how and when people knew and how many different attempts at reporting took place despite no real mechanisms for reporting for years, right? That player surveys were used. Um, players tried to report things directly to you know, leadership at U.S. soccer, whether that was actual leadership or Jill Ellis as head coach. So I do, I honestly want to note there, like, I don't know what she would have been able to do, right? Like, I think that that is just kind of a, you're trying to report to someone else and it would have been flagged. But then if you also reported it to then U.S. soccer president, Sunil Gulati at the same time, I don't know what Jill's going to be able to do in that situation. That's not to necessarily minimize her involvement, but I think just, looking at the rest of, of what we have read, like this is one of the big takeaways I think is that with the lack of reporting mechanisms and also with the fact that they told us soccer, they told the league, they told the teams, they told all of these different places, even potentially safe sport in some cases. And all of these things just kind of combined into both, I think active, <laughs> And passive ways of minimizing those reports. It's just like there's nothing, there's nothing coming out of it. And I, I want to stop for a second and just say, um, there's the start of this report starts with an incident that is going to be new to to most people. That is, I think, very upsetting and horrifying in many ways. Um, and I think is going to reaffirm just kind of the worst of what has happened. But I think more than any one incident, right? This is a, we have seen it. It's been reported at so many teams across the league. This report only focuses on Portland, Louisville, and um, Chicago. So there is a, a limitation in the report in terms of scope of what teams we're talking about, but it's more than any one incident. It's more than what one player went through, what one coach did, what one person knew or didn't know at what specific time. Like this to me is a, an attempt to wrap 
up what a systemic failure looks like on basically every single level. And that that is kind of one of the main conclusions is our investigation has revealed a league in which abuse and misconduct, verbal and emotional abuse and sexual misconduct had become systemic, spanning multiple teams, coaches and victims. Abuse in the NWSL is rooted in a deeper culture in women's soccer, beginning in youth leagues that normalizes verbally abusive coaching and blurs boundaries between coaches and players. I think that's what my number one takeaway from the report was. So in the all the reporting that we've had so far in the past year or so, I think people have sensed it's kind of like an iceberg. The facts that we do know were the tip, but there is a sense that there's got to be more underneath enabling such a wide system of ignorance. How many coaches and GMs went? And so people wondered, why is it so widespread? And I think this is kind of getting at it in two ways. One being the systemic ignorance and neglect. So names that may come up here will be like Sunil Galati, Dan Flynn, the CEO of U.S. Soccer at the time, uh, Lydia Walke, General Counsel, um, Cheryl Lisa Bailey. Lisa Levine, too, as Lisa well. Lisa Levine, who is someone who I think has kind of come up already, but it makes very clear where there was like an institutional care for the institution and not the players. Mm-hmm. Just kind of worrying about like legal liability in some cases as opposed right. to player safety. Um. And so these are names of all, all people who receive some level of information at some point in time and then, you know, may have passed it on or may not have. For example, Cheryl Bailey, I believe in the report, is said to have uh, passed on information from like a player survey at some point, some kind of detail to Arnim Whistler, the owner of the Red Stars. But, you know, that's the reaction to that again is is was minimizing. It was completely yeah. to like brush it aside. There was one point where it was reported to the investigators by players and staff that Whistler just called that Rory being Rory. And right. that players had an axe to grind. Right. So the the systemic and like these specific individuals at the top, but I thought it was so important that this report said it's rooted in youth soccer. Yes. And that it's not just some problem that crops up at the pro level. It's something that I've reported on before, right? Where, and, and players have told us before that this kind of stuff gets normalized. It was so heartbreaking. There was a detail where a sports psychologist in 2021 was brought on to do anonymous interviews with the Chicago Red Stars players. And the psychologist identified 70 per, 70% of the players interviewed, the psychologists identified them reporting abusive behavior, but not all of them recognized the behavior as abusive it was so pervasive it was so normalized and there's so much of like oh it's just tough coaching or coaches are supposed to yell at you if they call you names or just getting the best out of you blah blah or it's like it's just what you have to put up with in order to be a player which at the pro level you can kind of see people being like okay i'm getting paid for this but kids yeah and they're getting this attitude when they're kids from the ages of 11 12 13 at these impressionable ages. And we've been told before, Rachel Wood, who was a former Boston Breakers player, spoke to me and said, it creates this mindset where you'll accept abuse from other people as well in other areas of your life, your relationships, your family. So Yeah. There's a there's a conclusion very early in and you know the the headline of the section is abuse in the end of Bissell is systemic, which yes. But I mean the end of that first paragraph says the roots of abuse in women's soccer run deep and will not be eliminated through reform in the NWSL alone. And I just, 
you know, I think this was a, a big part of the conversation that I had with Megan Burke and Jessica Berman and the two lawyers who are overseeing the NWCL, NWCL PA joint investigation. I think we really need to come up with an acronym to figure out how to make that a faster thing to say. But that aside, you know, that that has been a big a, a big point of focus is that they knew they knew that coaches were coming in from a different ecosystem. And then a big part of the findings here with Sally Yates are no one is then informing these youth teams that these coaches own, right? No one is trying to take that step of not even just handling it in the NWL, but knowing that there are kids who are being coached by these same people. I think an example though, of how pervasive this is. So yes, the report points out, for example, um, when Paul Riley was being hired, I don't believe anybody tried to reach out to his youth teams or uh, Rory Dames owning Eclipse. Mm -hmm. As far as we know, he still owns Eclipse Youth Club, although he may not necessarily be actively coaching there, but he's still reaping the financial reward of it. But the thing that has happened, and in talking to various sources throughout youth soccer, is, and we see it as well, just in public reporting, many times when there's an allegation the club, the parents, and the other players turn on the person reporting the abuse. And they're like, oh, he's a great coach. He's, you're just jealous. This is like, like the, the Whistler quote is just an axe mm-hmm. to grind. Right. You know, you weren't getting playing time, et cetera, et cetera. This is club politics. Um, and I think that's part of the problem that the, the report is trying to get at with this pervasive, deep-rooted thing where there's this mentality around sports, youth sports, that for some reason makes people just completely lose their minds. Yeah. Or this idea that like sports are have this inherent moral value and it's like twisted people into thinking like, I've got to protect my child's career. I've got to protect the club. You know, this person is like, they reach for any excuse except for maybe this coach abused a child. Yes. And you see it over and over and over and over again. And of course, it reaches into pro sports, right? You hear about a pro athlete has abused a woman and everyone's like, well, she deserved it. Or, you know, he's an NFL quarterback. So that's more important than this woman that he beat. That sort of thing. I think that's kind of what the report is circling around. But it's not necessarily within the scope. The scope was NWSL itself. <laughs> right. And they were like, we cannot investigate every single facet of soccer in the United States. Yeah. That there is, like there, I think that it keeps continually referring to the culture of the sport, I think is, is very telling, but also I think reaffirms uh, like everything that we have been talking about of just, this is kind of baked in to the sport, but also I think in, in many ways, sports in general of there is a built in, power imbalance like that is just how there's always going to be a coach there are always going to be players there's always going to be an owner in some form right and you can't you can't erase that magic like there is no just like fundamental like we have to completely redo the idea of sports and it's just like everybody has fun and and it's you know like we have built this idea of professional sports and there's no coming back from that but i guess like how do you look at it and recognize where the dangers are and minimize harm from those potential dangers. And, you know, this is where I think it's going to be really interesting to see, because also we're having this conversation about women's sports and we're saying women's soccer, right? The culture of women's soccer, this is happening in men's leagues. And I think the thing that really scares me is that, 
you know, as much as this report says women are conditioned to kind of accept this normalization of verbal abuse that they don't realize, like, I think in in many ways, like men are conditioned to not share (laughs) things that are happening to them at at this kind of, and we're starting to see that in, you know, like there was a recent report from USL in terms of coaches and the players association stepping up for players in this situation. But again, to your, your iceberg and not like, we have only scratched the surface in so many ways. And this is not a women's soccer problem by any stretch. Well, I want to point out two of the first people who came forward to say something about Richie Burke when he was hired were men. They were one, both his former youth players for boys at teams that he coached, where he called them, you know, the F slur and berated them and was just verbally abusive and violent verbally violent so yeah it's everywhere in every sport every gender which is really scary yeah um i want to i guess get us back into a little bit of this report i think the part again i i hesitate to be like okay we've got to get into like there are details in here that are in here for a reason and there are going to be even more details that come out in this full you know, this, this report is going to be 173 pages. So first I do want to say like, this is not going to be the report that (laughs) can be digested in 280 characters on Twitter, right? Like that's not where this conversation needs to be happening, I think. But second of all, there is going to be new information in here. And in many ways, right. To your point, names, who knew what, when all of that stuff is going to be new to people. But I think from a team point of view, and they only focused on three, but in terms of the team that we knew the least about in the public sphere is Louisville. And this report opens with a story. Um, I want to pause and say Aaron Simon has done a very important and incredible thing by being willing to put her name on the record in this report in terms of what she went through as a, as a player in Louisville. But the Christy Holly stuff, I think I want to talk about it not just because of it being new, but because there is then the additional wrinkle of well, how teams participated in this investigation. Um, there's a very pointed comment at one point about teams might be saying publicly that they're cooperating, but that is not what we experienced as investigators. But in the case of Louisville in particular, they're using NDAs and non-disparagement agreements to basically sidestep trying right. to to participate. And I think that's going to be a really interesting discussion moving forward. Far be it from me to understand what exactly happened at the time. And actually, I'll talk more about that in a second because I, I'm a digital hoarder. So I have all the recordings from the interviews at that time in, in 2021. But I don't understand why, given the details in this report, you would ever sign an NDA or a non-disparagement with him, given what he did. Like the presumably the NDA and non-disparagement is to protect the club. But if he's the one who committed all the wrongdoing, wouldn't you simply be like, dude, look, we, we turned out what you did. It's like maybe on a criminal level of assault here. Mm-hmm. Although that's not something, again, that I'm like legally qualified to assess in this situation. Um, but like, 
I, obviously, I think this should come with a content warning, the report in, in this podcast, but he physically assaulted her. And the report calls it, you know, a sexually coercive relationship. Um, but in some of the incidents that he described where he's like groping her and putting his hands under her clothing in, in her, you know, genital areas, he assaulted her. And so I don't understand where this NDA non-disparagement, non-disparagement of whom? I don't even have an answer. Again, like. Right. So it's it's the thing where like the report is answering some questions, but generating a (laughs) lot more where it's like, okay, we need to. And so that is one of the recommendations of the report as well, where it's like NDAs, non-disparagement need to stop being part of your procedure when you dismiss these coaches, because when it's something this horrifying, it has to go into a public record so that they can't move to another club and do it again. That was another note that this wasn't just an isolated incident. It was part of a pattern of behavior where Christy Holly had also been verbally abusive at Sky Blue FC. He had been in a relationship with a player, a, a reportedly consensual relationship with a player, as far as we know. But, you know, it was also described as like toxic to the team. And so he was asked to leave. So he has a history of inappropriate coach player relationship, verbal abuse against the team. This is not passed on somehow. Like he does some interim contract, limited work for U.S. soccer in the interim. Which, side note, U.S. soccer does no investigation into right. why he leaves. No one asks why. Well, yep. I looked it up at the time. The general manager of Sky Blues, Tony Novo, they released Christy Holly. He's like, thanks, Christy, for all your work for us. Yep. He literally says thank you in the release. Yep. And and Christy Holly's allowed at the time to say, I'm stepping away. Like it's his choice. Works for USF, then moves on to racing again. There appears to have been no, either no due diligence where they didn't ask, hey, why did you leave Sky Blue? Like that information was able to get passed on. Or if they did know, they were just like, they won't. Yeah. And this is, I think, one of the things we're waiting for the full report. I do think that there's going to be more detail than what is actually just in the executive summary. So that to me is one of the, the pieces of this that I am waiting to read because I think there were warnings at that time and they hired him anyway. Um, so I, I, I think that there's still there again, there's still a lot. I do want to, I would, I want to swap us over into the recommendations because we are, we do know what Sally Yates has recommended for us soccer for NWSL for kind of everyone in general. But for, before we even get into those, I do want to, we'll have an explainer up on the site today in terms of like, how these investigations overlap, who's behind what, all this kind of stuff. But one of the big questions that I think I want to start with is just Sally Yates does not have the power to say, like, you must do this. That is not how this is going to work. Right. Sally She's not attorney can, general anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she she is going to be making recommendations. And then following that, there's also now a division of who has what power. So U.S. soccer, again, really important context, was manager of the league from 2012 when it technically started 2013 first season until 2020 and managed the league they do not do that anymore so u.s soccer cannot just unilaterally make a decision about how the nwsl runs itself or who gets disciplined coming out of this report or the joint investigation from the league and the pa so there's that context that i think is helpful before we are talking about the recommendations because some of these are for u.s soccer and to give u.s soccer more teeth behind, especially, you know, coaching licenses, the stuff that they can really affect 
when it comes to specific problems that are highlighted by the report. But still, a lot of this is going to come down to the NWSL to fix itself. And we also have to keep in mind that there is still a whole second investigation that is still ongoing and that is going to play a major role in disciplinary action in terms of policies moving forward. This is not going to exist in a vacuum when it comes to the NWSL, this PDF. Yeah. I did want to backtrack very quickly because uh, I brought it up and say I looked at the interviews from the time when Christy Hawley was released and Racing Louisville had a post game with Michelle Betos and Savannah McCaskill, who at the time played for them. And, you know, they were asked about Hawley, obviously, and Betos outright said, that's not something we're going to talk about. I think now we know they were protecting their, their players' privacy and it was a really tough, awful situation. Um, they both said they felt protected by the club at the time with the action that the club took, which I thought was great. The players feeling safer in the environment at the time, but they were also employed by the club at the time. So I think it'd be interesting to ask them a year on at a different club, like with a year to reflect and out of the immediacy of the situation, how do you feel about the handle it, especially with the NDA, knowing he did something so heinous, but was free to seek coaching work elsewhere. And so then pivoting like, yeah, you brought us to um, with NWSL and U.S. Soccer Management. I think the recommendation section was pretty good. There's some tangible stuff in there, not just like form a task force to look into. <laughs> it's like, yeah. here's some like a good dozen steps that you can immediately start implementing, as well as some dunking on safe sport and why. Oh, yeah, 100 like, percent. Like safe sport is not going to be part of this plan. Hopefully. And I, I think, but that's one of the, the takeaways is that you have to own player safety yourself. Like so many of these problems is because everybody looked at everybody else and said, well, safe sport exists or, oh, the Federation exists or, oh, you have to actively build something for player safety and do it proactively because otherwise not only does stuff fall through the cracks, but like people know that that system doesn't work and are able to operate within that system. So there is a sense of, you know, you have to have something called a player safety officer moving forward, both at a federation and league level, right? Like that is a, a big recommendation. Again, you actually have to have U.S. Soccer and NBSL follow these recommendations. But I think that does feel like a tangible thing of if someone actually owns this and then gets an email from a player saying, hey, I have information about a coach that I think you should talk to me about, someone is actually going to have to pick up the phone finally. Right. This officer whose sole responsibility or primary focus is player safety, who is obligated to provide quarterly or yearly reports to either the U.S. Soccer or NWSL board on player safety metrics, whatever they decide those might be. Um, I do think that one of the biggest developments here that didn't exist through much of the reporting is the NWSL Players Association, because that is an entity that is charged with and funded by players. It's charged with protecting players' interests. And, you know, that's been like CBA and stuff, but it's also been player safety, working conditions, having an HR department, establishing clear reporting channels, which was a, a recommendation in the report. Like, you know, yearly training that tells every player super clearly, here's your rights as a player. 
-hmm. Here's how to report abuse. And here's what is supposed to happen when you report, like super clearly outlined. And U.S. Soccer also having their own set of protocols publicly available in one place on their site. So everybody knowing exactly what's supposed to happen to avoid all this like, well, this person knew and this person knew. This person yeah. knew in 2014, this person knew half the story in 2019, and et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. Trying to have those methods of communication work out in a way that... I, I also want to talk about two recommendations that are basically where they w- just didn't have the ability to actually recommend something, and that is youth soccer, right? Where the recommendation is just saying, collaborate with youth member organizations and other stakeholders to examine whether additional measures are necessary to protect youth players. I mean, the answer is yes, there are additional measures needed to protect youth players, but that's not an area that was within the scope truly of this investigation. So it makes sense. But then the other big one that I think people are really going to fixate on is disciplinary actions, right? And the main takeaway here is, and I think there is a real understanding in a way that I find helpful of there is another investigation happening at the NWSL level and that, the findings in this report and then the findings from that joint investigative team are both going to be necessary to determine what the actual disciplinary kind of the accountability part of this is happening. Now, will we see something later today with certain people named in this report? Quite possibly with the, you know, from where we're recording, we do not know what the fallout is going to be, but I also don't know if I would be surprised by, waiting for that second report, the findings to come out to figure out how exactly the disciplinary part of this shakes out. Because again, so much of this is just, there's so many people who are no longer within these systems, right? We're talking about people like Dan Flynn, Sunil Gulati, Lydia, like all of these people are at Jeff Plush, right? Who refused to participate in the investigation entirely. Like they're gone. And there's not going to be like, I think, a satisfying accountability part of this because they are no longer within the system that can say, hmm, no, not good, right? Like, all you can really hope for is Cindy Parlo Cohen stepping forward and saying, it is now very clear how many mistakes have been made in the past, whether they were intentional or not, mistakes have been made. You know, you can get an ownership from an institutional point of view, but there's not going to be this kind of I think satisfying moment for a lot of players or people, you know, like that's not going to come. Everyone wants the end of the movie where the intrepid, you know, source mails all of their information to a reporter. It comes out in the newspaper and then you see someone getting perp walked, you know, out some doors or something like the end of Shawshank Redemption. Um, And it's just, not going to happen here. We're just left with a mess, especially the youth soccer angle, which um, the Yates investigation commissioned by U.S. soccer, that took a dozen or so lawyers working around the clock for a year just to do NWSL. In the report, they said they talked to over 200 people. Uh, Over 100 of them were past and present players. They reviewed 89,000 just from U.S. soccer. Just Just from from U.S. soccer. soccer. And they had to cull those from like millions of documents that U.S. soccer made available to be like, well, which of this is relevant and which was like the 2014 fiscal report from Pinky Reina. (laughs) Yeah. You know? (laughs) Um, So 
youth soccer, there's what, three, four million registered youth soccer players. They're across high school, they're across private, they're profit, nonprofit, various leagues, boys and girls. Every state association. I mean, states, different jurisdictions. And then it's just so I can't imagine the manpower, the fiscal resources, the time required to truly do a thorough investigation so of soccer youth soccer yeah so i think that's the question of and and this is i think some of the conversations that we've been having is do you even do an investigation or you just say we kind of accept the basic premise of things that need to improve right like we we have a sense of where the safeguarding is maybe not in place instead of trying to do some sort of accounting of everything that's ever gone wrong right do we just try to move ahead and say, okay, we've got to fix U.S. soccer in, at minimum, five, six, seven, ten, twenty different ways, right? Right off the bat. Like, we, we can name things that we need to fix and just fix them. Right. Because um, I think that's kind of now the point where I think you could investigate youth sports un- until the heat death of the universe, and there would always be something there. Right. Uh, I mean... I think it's with almost any big system, right? You can root out people who have caused harm in the past, but there's inevitably going to be people who also cause harm in the future. So it's equally as important to implement systems to address harm that has occurred alongside preventing harm. Like prevention is great, but it's inevitable. It's a sad inevitability. We have to address that harm will occur. I think some of the recommendations, three of them are coming to mind. One is mandatory uh, a minimum background check level standard with the U.S. Olympic uh, and Paralympic Committee. Although that suggests to me that they did not have that requirement to have background checks that were like compliant I mean, with the standard of U.S. I think, OPC I think now, now there is that kind of, but like, I mean, in the report, it says Rory Dames did not get a background check. He started as a volunteer right. coach. So the other important thing is, though, background checks, even clubs that are really diligent, background checks often don't turn up anything because they're checking for criminal behavior. But as we saw in the report, so many coaches, there's no reporting. They move from club to club to club. There's mm-hmm. no, there's never a criminal report or anything like that. Right. So what is a background check supposed to turn up? So I think an important part of the recommendations is um, uh, disclosure between clubs and a public list that shows coaches that have been dismissed or disciplined or something like that so that you can always check like, Hey, why have you coached at seven clubs in the past five years? Right. Right. Yeah. And that's, and that's part of where U S soccer can play a role too, really is getting some of that infrastructure in place. And, you know, I think one of the, the ones that really the recommendation that made me kind of go like, Ooh, this is going to be a fight is changing it from a licensing, like a, you know, you get your pro license, whatever, to an annual accreditation process because that is going to turn into a political battle very, very quickly, I think. But I think that there is a, a valid point to you need to continue to prove that you need to earn this, right? Like there needs to be that sort of check-in. Um, yeah. But it's, that's like this is where, you know, we're now starting to get into the weeds of, of just like I just keep thinking about something Andrea Kramer who's running – the Covington and Burling part of the NWSL, NWSL PA joint investigation. And she was just saying change is both uncomfortable and costly in many ways, in many ways that there is always a cost 
associated with change. And we're now finally starting to get to this point where we are going to really start publicly talking about the changes that are going to have to happen. And I do think that there is value in having a better sense of what happened in order to move forward. But you know, we could keep talking probably for another hour <laughs> on, on even the little that we do know right at the moment. Um, but I want to, I almost want to hit pause on this and then circle back around maybe next week, because I think we've got a lot of news coming. We've got, I'm assuming fallout in many different directions coming. We've got reactions coming. You know, there's just a lot. We're working with one piece of the puzzle right now and there's a lot on the way. So, um, you know, to end maybe on a lawyerly note, but any, any closing <laughs> argument that you want to, you know, maybe people are listening to this before they settle into a 173 page PDF, right? Like, I guess my closing comment is that I think we're all going to need to sit with this for a while. This is not going to be some sort of, Monday, the report comes out and Tuesday, the, the end of is, you know, we know exactly what we need to do or we know what's going to happen next. Like this is going to be a very big conversation with a lot of pieces. And I don't know. I just hope mostly that people take care of themselves <laughs> in this, in this week, because it is, it's just, it's a lot. It's really a lot. I think if you come away wanting to ponder one question, like one kind of meta question from this report, I think it should be questioning what role sports have in our lives and how this was able to happen given the value that we place on sports and the way that can be used as a cudgel to to make people be silent because you're, you're going to ruin something important because sports have this inherent value or they're so important and et cetera, et cetera. They empower kids, young girls, things like that. I would hope you come away contemplating like, do sports deserve inherently to exist and in what form if they're causing, I, I, I think that like 95% of kids sports are probably great. They're a great place. If I have kids, I'll put them in, in kid sports after, you know, doing a deep background check for a month and everybody that they come in contact with, you know, but I think if you want to grapple with that question, it would be good because there's a lot of taking for granted that these things should exist. They should just exist. Sports are important. They matter, right? Of course, they should just exist. And, you know, I think if you want to grapple with that, that's probably a good place to start um, and to resist the urge to what the perp walk scene where they march out the one, like we're all searching for the guy who did this, you know, <laughs> the hot dog guy, Sue meme. And it's like, resist that urge. Allow yourself to feel bad. Allow yourself to realize like, it's really complex. It's bigger than one fan group demanding change or one players association group demanding change or one Sally Hugh Yates report. <laughs> That's why systemic problems feel bad because they're yep. systemic and they take a lot, a lot of work to change. Like you said, a cost, not just money, time, people, emotional labor. So resist the urge to demand the perp walk. 
Yeah, I think that's a good place to end it. Um, we will obviously have more updates. Also, Steph and I are legitimately on our way to London on a red eye tonight. Um, so I think it is going to be a really interesting time in, in England. Obviously, the national team is not the NWSL, but we just concluded the regular season. Um, it is. I think it's just going to be a very interesting mood because we're going to get this nice sold-out game in Wembley, and I think there is going to be a very strange um, cast to it from the, from the U S point of view. Um, but stay, stay tuned again, where we will have a full attempt at, at trying to pick out what I've, we think that you really need to know from that 173 page report. But I do honestly also hope that everybody, if you, if you are a person who is able to read it, can read it because I think, I don't want to necessarily speak for Sally Q Yates and her team, but I, you know, I think that living with the full nuance and detail of that report. And then when the NWSL, NWSL PA joint investigation um, reports are made public as well, um, there's going to be a lot to wade through. So I guess we will, we will end it there. And um, yeah, very strange Monday indeed. All right. Thank you to Steph for the time. Again, we will, I'm sure, be having multiple further conversations as as things unfold throughout the day, throughout the week, uh, throughout the rest of the regular season and, and into the release of the NWCL, NWCL PA joint investigation. My name is Meg. You've been listening to Full Time with Meg Linehan. You can always find me on Twitter and Instagram at It's Meg Linehan and my work at The Athletic. Full Time does not exist without the work and support of senior podcast producer Michael Zimmerman from The Athletic. Meg Linehan, thanks for listening today.